Welcome to FinTech Fridays. Oh yeah! A weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things FinTech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hey everybody, Mansip Khan here, and you are tuning in to the NCFA's newest podcast series called FinTech Fridays. Today, I have an incredible, absolutely incredible guest today. I have Henry Arslinian, okay? He is the FinTech and crypto head for Price Waterhouse and Cooper for Asia and the chairman of the FinTech Association of Hong Kong. Henry, thank you so much for making it here. Like, I am beyond, beyond grateful. Always a pleasure, Mansi. Thanks for having me. No, for sure. So I guess for those audience members that don't know who you are, could you for a quick minute, give us a quick rundown of who you really are. Absolutely, Mansi. Very happy to do so. So uh, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, my name is Henry Arslanian, and really my passion and my focus in life is the future of the financial services industry. And I'm, I tell people I'm just very lucky that I get paid by PwC uh, to be their uh, fintech and crypto leader uh, for Asia. So very active in the fintech and uh, crypto scene. As you mentioned, Mansi, I'm the chairman of the fintech association in Hong Kong. But also I do many things there, including I'm a, I'm a university professor. Uh, I'm an adjunct associate professor at the University of Hong Kong, where I teach the first fintech university course uh, in Asia. So very active in the broader scene there in the market. By background, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually from Montreal, Canada, uh, not far from Toronto where you are, and really started my career as a, as a lawyer uh, and then moved on, to, uh, moved on to Asia and became, uh, spent, more, spent more time in investment banking before joining a fintech startup and then moving into consulting. So, so very, really, really excited about uh, about being on the show and a great uh, look forward to our conversation today. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very excited. So, I guess could you talk about what made you move to Hong Kong? Right, like you said, you were based out in Montreal, Canada. Is <laughs> starting to have a very thriving financial tech and crypto community, right, and AI community as well. What 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 was the pull, or what was one of the major pulls? Absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, I, I had a very normal upbringing. I was a typical Armenian Canadian upbringing in Montreal. And after uh, I was started working as a lawyer and, uh, you know, when I was young, I used to travel a lot. And even now, I mean, I still travel quite a bit. And uh, really, uh, I was uh, after, after finishing my uh, internship uh, after the, my Quebec bar and the New York bar, uh, had had a chance. I was, I was thinking of actually going back to Europe. I had, had a, I'd spent a chance of studying in Paris uh, during my university years, and I was actually planning on going back to Europe to uh, uh, do some further graduate studies. But one day, literally, Mansiba was with my dad watching a, a TV show on Radio-Canada, the French version of CBC, called The Rise of the Chinese Dragon, and really talked about all the opportunities going on in China and Asia. And I swear, I, t- I put my application for, uh, for, Euro- for LSC at a time where I was, uh, was, I was going, Literally, and I went instead to China. I literally Googled uh, programs in uh, law and business in China. I bought a book the next day called Chinese for Dummies. And about a couple of months later, I was in, in, in Beijing uh, where I started, started studying Chinese at Beijing University. And then I went on to do a master's in Chinese law at the Tsinghua University. And really, that was the, uh, the point of no return, if you want, uh, for Asia. You know, after spending some time here, uh, I, after, after the, my, graduate, my studies, I moved down to Hong Kong. And really, Hong Kong is, uh, if you want a mix of a city where you have uh, not only finance, but also entrepreneurship and the overall energy, it was, it was a great mix. And uh, frankly, I've been there for 10 years now in Hong Kong. And uh, what I love about Asia is not only the, the fact that things move very fast, but you also have this energy and the type of people that generally end up in Asia 
especially in a city like Hong Kong, tend to have this really uh, alpha, go-getter, entrepreneurship, uh, hustler mentality, which I really love. And that's definitely something we're seeing today when it comes to fintech and especially crypto in, in the region. Huh. So essentially, Asia is going to be a crypto powerhouse that many might be overlooking then, right? Well, I'm not, well you know, it's very difficult to judge uh, powerhouses, but uh, there's definitely a, a big edge uh, in Asia. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. When you look at cities like uh, Hong Kong or China, uh, they're already financial centers. And when it comes to there are cities where doing business is very easy. Uh, not only you have the existing infrastructure, uh, these cities are, are voted every year as one of the easiest cities to do business from setting up companies to actually dealing with tax authorities. But also uh, there's a lot of advantages like tax wise. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, the personal tax rate in Hong Kong, for example, is 15%, 1.5, which plays a big role when it, when it comes to attractive business. But also when you look at the broader region, I mean, when you look at uh, China, obviously uh, used to be a big uh, crypto powerhouse until the ban. We can talk about that later if you want. But also if you look at today in markets like Japan or Korea, uh, where you still have uh, large volumes of crypto trading taking place on a daily basis. So there's a lot of these ecosystems uh, that are actually quite vibrant when it comes to uh, crypto, for example. But also what's really interesting is a lot of these cities, you have a lot of these best practices that are being developed, where you know the community is coming together and really coming up with frameworks that they want to abide with because they know that regulations cannot catch up in time. Uh, for example, uh, the, the FinTech Association of Hong Kong, which I chair, uh, released last December, a best practice document for ICOs, basically a 30-page document that anybody that wants to do an ICO can read and they will give examples of what some of the best practices are. Another example are for crypto exchanges. Uh, a SIFMA, which is if you want the association of the banks and the brokers in the region, uh, has a crypto committee, which I also sit on. And we published a couple of weeks ago a best practice document for crypto exchanges, especially centralized exchanges, on really what are the, some of the measures they need to focus on, not only on topics like KYC and AML, uh, know your client and anti-money laundering, but also other topics like custody and how to actually safeguard your assets to prevent events of hacks or, or cyber attacks, if you want. So overall, a very exciting place and a very vibrant ecosystem. Could you share a little bit more of the global trends that you are seeing in the crypto space, right? Like you mentioned that there's going to be increase in regulatory enforcement and how regulation can't really catch up and how sure. banks and institutions are trying to come to the space. And could you, I guess, speak on that a little bit more? Absolutely. Absolutely, Matsi. I mean, when, you, when we look at the, um, the, the crypto universe at a global level, uh, there's obviously a lot of regional uh, particularities. But at the global level, there are some big macro trends that we are observing. And these are relevant for people around the world, including in Canada. Uh, for example, one of them is really the increase in regulatory enforcement cases. Um, I really expect over the, last, the next coming months uh, to see an increase in number of enforcement cases by the regulators. Uh, frankly, there's, there's so many low-hanging fruits when you look at the broader space. Uh, for example, a lot of the ICOs that have launched over the last couple of months, uh, really, I mean, we're launching with complete disregard to the broader securities laws and broader uh, regulatory frameworks. So I, I expect a lot of enforcement in this case, and already we've seen regulators, not only in, in, uh, in the U.S. with the SEC, but also in Canada and other countries around the world, uh, start um, enforcing on certain uh, crypto matters. And to be fair, there's so many low-hanging fruit that it's easy for them to actually go and actually set, uh, make, make some of these uh, cases as examples. But also, I think when we look at broader trends, uh, for example, one of them is um, the arrival of institutional investors. You know, about, about a year or two years ago, many were wondering, are banks going to get into the space? Are traditional institutional investors going to start looking into the crypto space? 
And actually, it's been very interesting, very interesting, Mansi, because now we can actually see a lot of the large investors, not only the VCs, but also the family offices and many of the other large investor groups start looking at investing or participating in the broader crypto ecosystem. I think it's, we're still far away from seeing, let's say, a pension fund invest in an ICO. But I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised we see more and more of them over the next coming months invest in crypto funds, for example. But also then if we look holistically as well, banks, for example, if we look at a lot of the financial institutions, there's been numerous announcements from banks, from Goldman Sachs to Nomura to Fidelity over the last couple of months, um, announcing their plans in the crypto space. And this is very, inter- very important because in order for the industry to be more institutionalized and for some of the institutional players to come in, which will not only uh, add to the liquidity, but also make the industry more professional, you need some of these traditional players to enter the space, which is very good uh, to see uh, from, from that perspective. However, that being said, man, see, there's also a lot of challenges. I think we have to be very cautious of some of the challenges that exist in the broader global crypto ecosystem. Uh, for example, uh, the, probably the biggest challenge right now my clients are facing um, in the crypto space uh, is something very simple. It's opening a bank account. Uh, I can guarantee you can go right now to any crypto company around the world from ICOs to exchanges to funds, uh, they will probably tell you their biggest challenge is opening a boring bank account in order to be able to pay their rent, uh, do payroll and other activities that we take for granted. So that's, what, I mean, so that's one of the practical challenges we have. There's other practical challenges, for example, uh, while regulations are slowly shaping up and we're starting to see some, um, some regulatory clarity in certain jurisdictions, there's a lot of the basic fundamentals that are not decided yet. For example, accounting rules. Or um, right now, it's a, big, it's a very big difficulty for a lot of companies, uh, for audit firms, for example, to audit crypto companies. Why? Because a lot of the standards are not, are not finalized yet, and the processes and the controls that we need to put in place are not there yet. We will get there. Uh, but in the interim, this is why we're seeing a lot of the industry come together and actually come up with best practices uh, that, that, like I just mentioned previously, to regulate, if you want, quote unquote, the industry. Yeah, which is incredible, right? Like it's, um, it should be interesting to see the, the, I guess, the bridge being built between just traditional uh, institutionalized money and this whole new brand new crypto world, right? It should be interesting to see, I guess, what the new regulations are and who are the new players going to be. Absolutely, Mansi. But, you know, this is a question that comes up around, you know, especially when I, uh, I give keynotes around the world or discuss with clients or industry participants. If we look at, let's say, Bitcoin, let's focus on, on the first main cryptocurrency. I mean, it was really uh, the whole idea of blockchain and, and, and uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin was really to build this trustless environment where you didn't need these intermediaries, where people I mean, can actually transact with each other. Uh, there was a consensus mechanism in place and people can actually, you didn't need these banks and these intermediaries. That, that not only make the system slower, but also, frankly, uh, definitely more costlier. And it's ironic that actually we actually not know what the industry probably needs the most is some of these old solutions. For example, custody. You know, one of the main reasons a lot of the institutional investors will tell you they are not investing right now in crypto funds is because custody solutions are not uh, there yet for crypto. There's a number of solutions coming up and we'll solve this problem over the coming months. But that's one of the issues, for example, uh, that we are seeing. And you know, it's all uh, great that we can, uh, frankly, operate in the crypto space, but for the ecosystem to move to the next level, to become more mainstream and to become more institutionalized, we need some kind of regulatory uh, framework around uh, that is appropriate. You know, we shouldn't do an overkill, but really, I think that's, that's appropriate uh, for even simple stuff like to avoid people using cryptocurrencies 
uh, to for money laundering, for example, or for terrorist financing, which are, which are things that I guess nobody wants uh, from the crypto uh, ecosystem, but also uh, more broadly as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I guess to a lot of people in the mainstream community, it's the funding that like, oh yeah, you know, like um, criminals are going to use Bitcoin and or Ethereum and all these altcoins to do criminalities. I can see why that's a fear. And I guess I can see why there's such a fast and big push for regulation. So like, okay, let's figure out what we can and can't do as fast as possible. So we can kind of just thrive in this amazing market, right? Absolutely, Bensi. But you know, the, uh, I think we need to be careful. I think, I think uh, cryptocurrencies, I mean, criminals are, we're using cryptocurrencies. They are, and they will always be using cryptocurrencies for any bad uh, things they want to do. So the same way that actually cash is probably still the best, uh, the best tool that is used today for anybody who wants to launder money or buy drugs or, 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 uh, or uh, whatever. I think that's, that's um, uh, one of the areas in there. But what's really, really interesting is that the industry kind of became more mature to, uh, in dealing with these issues. I'll give you a very simple example. Let's see, ICOs, initial coin offerings. If you look at ICOs that took place more than a year ago, the concept of doing KYC, know your client, which is asking for a basic ID identification on whoever is actually giving you money or buying your tokens was really unheard of. And really since I would say the last 12 months, pretty much any semi-decent ICO right now is doing a KYC and doing AML checks. And actually um, the, the tools they're actually able to use to do KYC and anti-money laundering checks are probably better than what a lot of the banks are using because these new, 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 these new startups are able to use the latest RegTech, regulatory technology solutions in the market, uh, who are in many ways, uh, that are in many ways uh, more efficient, better than what a lot of legacy tools that a lot of banks are using. So they, we're seeing definitely the industry more mature comes to topics like you mentioned, which are very, very important in, uh, to tackle as an ecosystem. So you did mention a couple times best practices that you've come up with on both of the boards that you're chairman of. Could you talk about your best practices and what you look into with all these new ICOs, all these new crypto companies popping up? Um, I guess what would be your best practices to keep in mind for these said companies? No, it's a very good question, Mansi. But I think definitely we need best practices and because regulations cannot catch up time, you know, you know, frankly, uh, regulators have done a great job. And I think this is one thing regulators don't get the, the respect and the credits they deserve, frankly, for how on top of the crypto ecosystem they are. I, I would say personally, the, when I have a, the average regulator I speak with is way more, reg, way more knowledgeable on crypto than the average banker. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't, don't realize when it comes to the broader ecosystem. That being said, coming out with regulations, it takes a very time consuming. It, 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 it's, there's a lot of stakeholders involved. This is why we need a lot of best practices. And really, best practices depends on which vertical you're talking about. For example, you mentioned ICOs. In ICOs right now, you need to do KYC and, and, uh, for any, any token sale you're doing. And I think that's has become quite standard right now. But there's other items. For example, governance, right? Uh, we're seeing increasingly a number of, of uh, ICOs actually put in place very proper governance frameworks. Not only, for example, at how the board is managed, how decisions are made, uh, but also at very practical levels, for example, what kind of reporting will be given to token holders, what kind of transparency will be given, how trends are going to how much disclosures will take place on the use of proceeds. And this, we're seeing actually, and one, one part of my job is I work with companies in ICO space on drafting these governments, governance frameworks in order to actually make themselves, you know, more institutionalized. But then also there's a lot of other um, clients, other matters we're seeing the best practices in, in other verticals, uh, crypto funds, for example. You know, I spent many years in my banking career in the, in the hedge fund world. 
And it's really incredible how much there's not a focus yet on independent directors or on transparency when it comes to the board of the crypto fund. A lot of people are still managing crypto funds. The same people are managing the portfolio also sit on the board of the fund. Really, so there's no checks and balances from that perspective. And these are, I think, things we, hope, we expect to see over the coming months. But also there's best practices when it comes to exchanges. For, for example, how the, the, the keys, the private keys are stored. Uh, you know, how, there's a, how, how uh, cold storage is being done, how hot storage is being taken place. So there's a lot of actually these best practices that we are seeing across the different verticals. And I have to say, it's very good to see some of the, the service providers that are entering the space as well. I often tell people at PwC, uh, when I tell people that I, I run a crypto team in Asia, People are actually quite surprised. I mean, only in Hong Kong, I have about, we have about 30 people in our crypto team that are focused solely on helping crypto companies. Not only ICOs, but also crypto funds, exchanges, but helping banks enter the crypto space as well. And we're seeing a lot of the best practices that we use in the normal world, if you want, the traditional world. And now we're bringing those best practices over to the crypto space, which I think is great for the long-term sustainability of the ecosystem. Yes, I absolutely agree with you, though. I think those are amazing best practices to have in mind. And it depends on what vertical, I guess, companies and people decide to take to, I guess, close this off. um, Being fellow Canadians, what would be your advice to Canadian crypto companies to help skyrocket our progress in this in this space? Oh, I think anybody that uh, knows a bit of the crypto space, you know, the first thing I tell everybody is whoever tells you they're a crypto expert, uh, you got to run away and you got to run, run away very fast. So I'm never in a position to give advice. All I can do, though, however, is as a fellow Canadian and, and somebody that actually really cares about the ecosystem in Canada, I have to say I'm very proud. Uh, you know, over the last, uh, you know, uh, a couple of months, I met a lot of Canadians who are in the crypto space. Um, and actually, Canada is doing very amazing stuff, right? For example, some of the innovation we're seeing in the startup scene in Toronto, uh, where you're based, or even some of the innovations we're seeing in the AI space in, in Montreal, for example, are actually very, very impressive. And I have to say, the branding and the image that Canada has um, is actually excellent when it comes to the broader in- entrepreneurship and innovation at the global level. The one thing I, I have to say that with uh, Canadian companies generally, I found is that we, we don't think big enough. And this is one big, if there's one um, complaint, I would say, you know, self-criticism of us as Canadians is actually we don't think big enough and we actually often just focus on the Canadian market or we compare ourselves to the U.S. market. But really, we have, we have to have a bigger vision of this. And I should see this uh, for many years. I used to sit on the board of the uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. And this was actually something we used to see with a lot of Canadian companies that would come over is they would, this is the first time they would think about Asia, for example. And because the U.S. market is so big, it's next door, it's very convenient, same time zone. Um, I think that's the, if there's one piece of advice is really think big and really look at, think more internationally than just the Canadian market. And we really are better than we think. Um, you know, from, uh, from our universities that we have in Canada, the reputation we have, our ethics, our culture, and really I think the way we operate, not only in business circles, but also in other social circles, is really remarkable. And we don't give that enough credit to us as Canadians which is something I think we should do more of. But at the same time, we have amazing Canadian thought leaders like yourself out there kind of showing like, hey, guys, we can go global. We can do amazing things. Look, see what I'm doing, right? So th- having people like you in the space, I think that helps tremendously to inspire Canadians to think a little bit more globally and to have that little bit more, quote unquote, world dominating mindset, right? Yeah, and we, and we have friends all around the world. You know, uh, I remember for many years, in my first couple of years of China, when I was in, in Asia, I actually used to fly back for weekend. And I used to teach at, in, in Quebec, in uh, the University of Sherbrooke, courses on how to do business in China and Asia, for example. 
And there's a lot of goodwill. I mean, you know, it happens to me a lot of these uh, crypto meetings or when I meet clients or in the broader fintech space that I meet other folks around the world. And it just turns out they're Canadian as well. And what I find is it's actually, we have this kind of uh, network around the world of Canadians are generally very eager to help. Now, I'll give you a very simple example. I might see Hong Kong. I mean, you know, I'm always coming back to Hong Kong because I think it's a great example. Uh, only in Hong Kong, there's more than 300,000 Canadian passport holders. Let me repeat that. 300,000 Canadian passport holders. Wow. Actually, Hong Kong is probably one of the biggest Canadian cities we have actually in, in the world. And this is a great alumni network, if you want. There's something like, I think, 50 or 60 Canadian university alumni networks only in Hong Kong. You know, so there's all this network that we have around the world that people don't, 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 a lot of Canadian companies, I think, don't tap on. The other thing is, by the way, our great foreign service. And really, um, I had the privilege over the last couple of years to deal with a lot of our embassies and consulates and um, trade, trade uh, missions around the world. And we really have exceptional people in these roles that are there to help Canadian companies. So really, um, I think we can, that's what I'm, what I'm saying. There's a lot we can do and we have to be a bit more self-confident uh, to achieve that. No, I absolutely agree. I didn't. I didn't know the. There's so many Canadians in Hong Kong. That's, that's incredible news. Here we go. You can even find poutine now in, in Hong Kong or in, in Shanghai, for example. <laughs> okay, I, I think I think we're we're probably we're gonna we're gonna bump those number up. Now that you said that, oh goodness me, there's gonna be so many Canadians flooding to Hong Kong just for the poutine. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely oh man i mean there's even from you know uh, i often tell people you know i play hockey on saturday morning still in hong kong and uh, we, we often we often uh, it's incredible there's a whole network of people waking up at uh, seven in the morning on sunday mornings just to watch the habs or the leaves or whoever uh, canadian their jets are playing on the, the evening before in canada so yeah there's definitely a big uh, big network if you want i always call the canadian network the biggest private club in the world so it's all it's all there I love that. I love that. The biggest private club in the world. That's amazing. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. This has been amazing. Uh, I think you've changed a lot of Canadians' minds about Hong Kong, and you're going to have a lot more Canadian neighbors for sure. <laughs> Looking forward, Mansib. Always a pleasure. And thanks for having me. And again, uh, thank you for focusing on the broader uh, fintech and crypto scene. And I think it's great to create more awareness on these topics and the exciting space that we have. Uh, for, for your audience and the people in not only in Canada, but actually uh, globally as well. So thank you very much for having me and I look forward to staying in touch. You've been listening to FinTech Fridays brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest FinTech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment FinTech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org.